Because I see women who have a ferritin of 25 and that is their sweet spot. And I can tell you that they are doing beautifully with a ferritin of 25. How can I say that? Because their transferrin says so. Their transferrin is nice and low, says, nope, we're good, please don't give me any more, I'm good. The FBE is robust, right? There is no sign of shortfall and there's no reason why that transferrin would not work as a reliable marker in these women. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast and I'm very pleased to have back by popular demand, uh, Rachel Arthur. Welcome back, Rachel. Thank you. Very pleased to be back. Oh, great. So we had yeah, an overwhelming response from your first podcast. We've got you back soon after. Um, and we're here to celebrate your own podcast. As I understand, you've reached 100 in your under 30 update. Update and under 30. How do you pronounce it? Yep, that's that's right. Update and under 30. And um, yes, it makes me sound old. And I feel a bit old saying that's 100 episodes because we do one every month. Um, but it has been going a long time now. And um it does feel like it's something worth celebrating. Yeah. Started off as such a small fry sort of thing where I just thought, well, I'll just record these little topics, you know, these punchy little topics that I think are really relevant to general naturopathic or nutritional medicine. And um, the audience grew and grew and it kept going. And yeah, now we're at 100. Fantastic. So we thought we'd um, discuss some of the most popular topics of your 100 episodes to date and sounds like iron questions around iron interpreting iron studies was one of the overwhelming favorites is that true yeah it is and i i think that is a really a good reflection of how much real estate it takes up in our practice you know i think that when i looked back i said to you i think almost 10 percent of the 100 episodes are talking about iron whether it's how to read iron studies or how to treat iron problems um, and get better success rates and things like that or correcting myths and misnomers about iron in pregnancy. And I think that that does reflect how big a piece of the patient pie it really is for us in practice because, you know, every woman just about who comes to see us has had her iron checked and a lot of men have too. Mm. So we already have access to information that we don't have about most nutrients. And then you go, oh, well, that's interesting. But then to be cognizant that such a large fraction of all of those people who have iron studies actually have an imbalance of some description, it may most commonly be, you know, a shortfall or a deficit, but it might be another type of imbalance as well. So it's not just that it's the most tested nutrient. Um, that people already have had assessed, it's that it's the most problematic uh, really for a lot of those people. So problematic in terms of its effect on health or more just the, um, and or the confusion around, there's, we'll get into all the, the measures and, and variables, is there confusion around understanding, interpreting them? 
Well, I think both. I mean, it is without a doubt, you know, it's uncontested really globally as being the number one mineral deficiency. And we would echo that here in Australia, even in our, you know, resplendent sort of diet and socioeconomic well-being compared to other parts of the world, we'd still say, yeah, you know, 34% of females who are menstruating are considered iron deficient. So it, it does, um, you know, there are good reasons why everybody's getting their iron tested by the GPs because, you know, it is so problematic, particularly for menstruating females um, and for young children and for pregnant women. Um, but, um, you know, I think the other problems get less airtime, but we have to be really onto them, really alert to them as clinicians. And that's, you know, there's there's actually quite a high prevalence of individuals with HFE mutations. So they might not present with actual iron overload, but you can see them from a mile off when you know what to look for and you know not to give them iron no matter what their ferritin sort of says. So I think, yes, a lot of people, and Nathan, I'm sure everybody will nod along and go, oh, yes, not another woman who says I've got, in inverted commas, iron issues and I've had iron issues my whole life and no one can fix them. We hear a lot of that. And then I think when we understand how to read iron studies, we find all these other patients that actually have different kind of iron issues and nobody's ever spoken to them about that but we need to yeah um so before we dive into all the juicy details are there some um myths or misconceptions that you often hear from patients or practitioners um around iron and iron studies like do they tend to just um overly focus on one parameter and ignore others or um yeah, yeah. what's some For of the, sure. the common common sort of myths and misconceptions i think the thing that that um gets me shedding the most tears is <laughs> everybody everybody being told that they don't need to fast for iron studies um i understand how that comes about you know in general practice in medical general practice you know they're not looking for sophisticated or subtle interpretation of iron studies they're saying is your ferritin under 30 or under 20 or you know is it um, outrageously high and they're not really equipped to look at it in a you know a patient's iron studies in a more nuanced sort of fashion Mm. but anyone that is knows that the second you put food in your mouth you change the results that you're going to see in those iron studies most notably, you change, you know, transfer and saturation and ceramine, but even ferritin has been shown to be pushed up depending on what you put in your mouth before that blood draw. So for us that are really more knowledgeable in this area and it's our bread and butter business to fix these problems with people, we've got to know, no, no, you've got to fast. You do have to fast to get really accurate results and then make sure you always fast. Um, so that we're comparing apples and apples. Yeah. So fasting is number one or, or the furfy that you don't need to fast. Um, the other big myth is, you know, looking at ferritin in isolation. There are still GPs that do refer just for ferritin. That is extremely frustrating because even the RAC GP says don't do that. Uh, even the RAC GP has some great training documents and kind of white papers for GPs on 
how to refer for iron testing or iron assessment and how to read them. And they say ferritin is almost never useful in isolation. Um, you do need all the iron studies. Um, so yeah, ferritin and, and then the over-reliance on it, even if people get the full suite of iron studies, which is like reading a whole book once you know how, you know, each parameter reflects a chapter of that book or a page in mm. that kind of story. Even when we do get the full suite of iron studies, a GP will often just look at the ferritin and say, oh, so it's low and you need more or it's high and, you know, you, you don't need any more. But you've missed, you've sort of picked one sentence off the page when you do that and you've missed the rest of the pages in the chapter, you know, all the rest yep. of the sentences on the page. It's really not the right way to understand somebody's, you know, current relationship with iron. And then definitely something that goes the rounds over and over again and I heard it recently at a big conference here in Australia and I was a bit gobsmacked and uh, of course couldn't keep my mouth shut and <laughs> surprise you Nathan um, was saying that you know an optimal ferritin for menstruating women is around about 100 milligrams per litre I'm like I'm sorry says who I've never, ever, ever found a paper in 20 years of research that supports that. And it just ignores what healthy ferritin or what a healthy surplus of iron actually looks like in a menstruating female. So they're sort of the big things that I think we're contending with all the time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll, we'll dive into all those. I thought maybe um, I listened to... Your, your iron podcast and they're, they're fantastic and one of the threads i wanted to sort of start with um i always love it like an evolutionary story of, you know how we've adapted and and why things that are potentially the way they are and iron's an interesting one i think that um and i'll get you explain but it seems like you know evolution's around all that sort of short-term survival and um but we can accumulate iron as we get older and older and i don't think our bodies really probably have been designed to care that much about you know long-term um, so I it's probably more about stopping losses. Um, but on the flip side, somewhere maybe throughout evolution, we've been faced with infections and we know that um, infections can um, utilise iron or particularly bacterial infections to, to thrive. So it feels like we've got some mechanisms to sort of move iron and store iron. Um, I don't know, just how do you think about iron in, in the body compared to other minerals? It's quite unique in terms of its storage and absorption and transportation. Can, can... Yeah, it really is. And, and I think we have to start this conversation with a bit of a disclaimer, which is we've known about iron since the late 1800s. And that's a really long time. Mm. That's a big body of research, right? And, and empirical experience as well. You compare that to something like zinc, which was only discovered to be essential in the 1960s or selenium in the 1970s. And you understand that probably we're going to get to the same place of yeah, understanding true. how sophisticated our management is of those other minerals, but we're not there yet because time, we haven't had the time. Mm. So we are in this really beneficial place with iron research where we have had the time and, and we know so much about its regulation and everything that we learn, like your sort of, 
um, you know, inferring there just blows our minds because we go, wow, that is so clever. You know, that is so exquisitely regulated and so clever. So one of the big things about iron to appreciate, as you say, from an evolutionary perspective, one is that it was abundant, generally speaking, in most, mm. um, you know, historical kind of paleolithic diets and things like that, because most people in the world were eating animal product and so iron was readily, you know, available. Um, and so that that's one thing to think about in terms of, you know, our ability to absorb it and our regulatory systems was that we weren't having to work as hard um, as we were to, say, um, regulate our sodium, which mm. was incredibly sparse in the Paleolithic diet or, you know, um, something like iodine, right? We have incredible uh, capacity to absorb iodine because it was so hard to come by. So iron is, you know, for me, contextually, we have to acknowledge that. We say, okay, well, it, it wasn't the most, you know, light on mineral, historically speaking. So we have this kind of, you know, roughly at best sort of 10 to 20% bioavailability of it. But one of the big things that you just touched on is kind of this risk-benefit analysis that our body does with iron all the time. It says, okay, I, I can benefit from you. I need you. You're an essential mineral. But I have to weigh that up with risk because mm. actually you're quite dangerous to me in various ways. Um, and the, you know, evolutionary uh, kind of landmark feature of this was you are, you know, iron is particularly dangerous to the individual who, you know, is infected by bacteria. The understanding underpinning this is that, of course, bacteria use iron, much like we do, and this fuels their proliferation and, and uh their ability to survive in the host and, and basically dominate. So in that regard, you know, this is just one aspect of risk. But if an individual, you know, here and now in, in you know, this time, moment in time, has inflammatory signals going off in their body, our Stone Age genes go, hey, <laughs> that's probably bacteria, right? And what we need to do is limit the bacteria's access to iron. So what we're going to do is we're going to shut down further uptake. So we're going to close down our DMT1 transporters in the gut. We're going to stop picking it up to, you know, as much as we can from dietary intake. And we're going to stop moving it and mobilizing it around the body. We're going to sequester as much out of the blood into the liver as we possibly can because we assume that the bacteria isn't there. So this is just such a beautiful illustration of that sort of sophisticated regulation. Mm. A whole lot of messaging systems going around, a whole lot of memos being passed about effectively what the liver thinks is the state of play. So in that illustration there, the liver is producing uh, CRP primarily. Yep. It's the CRP that then gives a reciprocal boost in something called hepcidin. And hepcidin is, is our key, we think, 
iron regulatory molecule, but it's a negative regulator. It tells the gut, no more. Don't pick up any more. Don't carry any more around the blood. This is not the time. And so, you know, that that's basically what's at play until the memo changes and says, oh, the threat has passed. So, of course, that's only going to change when the CRP drops. And then, you know, the hepcidin in turn will drop. The doorways or the DMT1 transporters in the gut will reopen and say, okay, now we're ready to receive iron again. Now we're ready to deliver it around the body to whoever, you know, whichever target tissues need it. So it's such an interesting example, isn't it? And as you say, it would have been pivotal to our survival Mm. because bacteria did us in more often than not, (laughs) you know? Yeah. So I might use that as a a springboard to look at um, do's and don'ts around testing. So that tells us that we need a a nice baseline um, or we need to investigate if there's inflammation going in the system which could create this sort of transit or pseudo iron deficiency. So... What are some of the things you think are really important that people, patients do or don't do prior to um, getting their iron studies drawn? Well, as we said, you do need to fast and the minimum time of fasting is five hours. The really ideal time is somewhere around nine to 10 hours. Even though I say to my patients, look, 12 hours of fasting is fine. For some of them, we already start to see mobilization of stores. So around about that point, your body starts to go, oh, my God, Nathan's not eating, Nathan's not eating, mobilize the troops. And you start to actually break down some of your iron stores and put them back in the blood. Yeah. So it it makes sense that we've really got this very specific window for ideal, accurate, you know, uh, iron studies of about you know, five to nine hours, five to 10 hours of fasting. Stopping iron supplements is a huge one prior to and ideally three days prior to the test. Because when I'm retesting a patient who's taking oral iron, I'm not asking the question, are they telling the truth about taking it? Mm. You know, but that's all you're going to get the answer. You know, that's the only answer you're going to get if you don't get them to stop three days beforehand. If, if they keep taking it right up until the time that, you know, you get the blood draw, you just see these artifactually elevated, you know, transfer and saturation levels. Um, you'll see, you know, the ferritin won't be its true reflection of a surplus. It also will be temporarily elevated. So getting people to stop their iron three days beforehand is a really, really important one as well. Some of the other things that we don't tend to think about so much is avoid the big night out before the blood draw. The big night out in terms of alcohol intake, alcohol, you know, and we try not to let this uh, one loose in public, but alcohol is a very, uh, it, it, it increases iron bioavailability. There's no beating around the bush and that's why we don't talk about it a lot in public because we don't want all our patients to become winos and (laughs) and, uh, have further excuses to really get on it but the reality is it uh, radically increases iron bioavailability and so if somebody has had a big night out on the weekend and then they get their blood draw Monday morning they can almost look like they have an HFE mutation, like they're a hyperabsorber of iron. That would be typified by a high normal 
or a high above range transfer and saturation. So that's another thing to avoid as well. And avoiding really strenuous exercise, you know, in the couple of days beforehand, you know, don't do a weekend warrior sort of, you know, competition or a marathon, you know, normal kind of incidental or low level exercise is fine, but anything that's big enough to get your CRP up, as we just described, will trigger that response from the body and create that redistribution of iron. And then, then you don't know what you're actually looking at in the lab. Yeah. Um, and obviously, so you recommend CRP um, alongside iron. Any other tests? Look, it's always good to have a look at the FBE, um, yeah. of course. And I would say CRP, even though I've focused on that because that is considered to be the key catalyst for triggering hepcidin, we, you know, I think that we have to acknowledge that there are other inflammatory milieus that are not always going to be reflected by an elevated CRP. So I take a bigger look around at inflammatory markers, and that would be things like having a look at the albumin to globulin ratio, making sure that that's nice and high, certainly not below 1.5, you know, more dramatically below 1.2. Having a look at the white cell count, just even looking for a slight shift up in that Mm. from that individual's norms and we've talked about you know norms and individual shift last time so you know you do have to look broadly to say I'm really certain that there's no inflammation here I wouldn't just rest on a CRP that didn't pick it up Um, sometimes you'll find that the CRP has missed it but you're in no doubt that this patient is inflamed because of the albumin to globulin ratio the white cell shift and then you look at the iron and you go, yeah, there it is. The ceramine has dropped, the transferrin saturation has dropped, and the ferritin has just slightly risen because, of course, you know, that, that's basically the iron being hidden in the liver. Yeah. All right. So let's um, assume our patients have avoided those things, alcohol and exercise, and, fa- and they've fasted the right amount of time. Um, they've discontinued their iron and you've ordered these extra tests, now you get the results back. So you probably have a slightly different interpretation or or focus on some of the parameters than maybe some other clinicians. So I'm really curious to to see um, why you choose or or not choose certain parameters. Um, So first, with the start with a couple that you you probably put maybe less emphasis on than others is, um, so ceramine and hemoglobin. Um, So... What what was it about those that could be misleading or you you prefer not to sort of overemphasize? So ceramine is considered the least meaningful, the least reliable in iron studies, and that's a general consensus. Yeah, um, it's a very fickle little fellow. Um, mm. It moves up and down, of course, at different times of the day, certainly in response to food intake, and. Um, you know, it uh, drops, of course, dramatically with any sort of inflammatory signal. So, again, you know, this is echoed by the RACGP. You know, everybody says don't look at ceramine. It's just not the right marker to look at. In terms of um, haemoglobin and FBE, as I said, I always look at them. It's very important because, you know, obviously, I think it's like 75 or 80% of our iron at any one time is in the red blood cell mass. So that's a big part of the iron story. So we always need to look at that um, 
at the same time to understand what is going on in terms of erythropoietic demand or, or shortfall. But hemoglobin, hematocrit, MCV, they're very late mm. markers of iron deficiency. You have to be down at the bottom of your barrel to start to see the pinch in these sort of areas. Unless, again, you're really scrutinising someone labs and you know that what their normal looks like and you, you're looking for that subtle shift down and you go, oh, this wouldn't mean anything to anybody else, but because I know you're normally a 135 hemoglobin, you know, or thereabouts, yeah. and now I see you drop into the 120s, something's up. Um, but, you know, it, it is a late uh, marker. And I think the other thing to be mindful of, and this is going to echo some of my concerns about how we a little bit led astray in our interpretation of, you know, what normal ferritin looks like. Similarly, we're a little bit led astray about what healthy hemoglobin looks like. Because the reference ranges only provide us with a minimum. So they say, oh, you know, you're, mm. as long as your hemoglobin's over 120. And I think, wow, no maximum. Mm, that's, that's interesting. And I think we have this reflexive thing as humans where we go, well, more is better. Yeah. You don't want to be at 120. Well, actually, <laughs> a lot of the literature says women do. Women do in a healthy um, you know, context um, with good iron stores often sit very low in that range. You know, it's really common that menstruating women would sit 120 to 130 in their hemoglobin and only shift up at menopause. And in fact, having, uh, you know, hemoglobin that's notably higher than this, and you'll be surprised that it's not actually that high, you know, is associated with um, increased mortality in women. Same, same in men, slightly different numbers, but that same sort of issue. It's a U-shaped curve. And, and so we just need to reset our thinking. We need to understand that 120 as a minimum, uh, first of all, applies to Caucasians. It's a little bit high for other ethnic groups like Southeast um, uh, Asians um, and African-Americans. Um, and it doesn't mean that, you know, if you have a woman who has a hemoglobin of 122, uh, that she's doing badly yeah. at all. This could be a sweet spot for her. She could be iron replete. So, yeah, so I do tend to, I'm always looking at the FBE, but as long as they're above the minimum and as long as there is no evidence that their sweet spot is somewhere greater than where they're sitting right now because I've collated all their data and, and looked at it in detail, then I would, you know, move on and say, okay, now let's ask the more sophisticated system in the body whether they really are getting enough iron. And that means that I look at their transferrin levels. So the transferrin basically is the body's first sort of signal or response to that individual's shortfall. Right. So when the 
you know, that person, and I'm going to keep saying this because I do believe in individual, you know, biochemistry and individual medicine. I think that's really what we're about. So when that individual is not quite meeting their needs with iron, the body responds first and foremost by, and the liver responds by manufacturing more transparent. Um, there are some exceptions to this rule, and we'll talk about those, but that is your signal. That says, excuse me, can I have some more? And we, when I pay attention to that, then I say, oh, I'm listening to you. you. You're calling out for more. So it doesn't matter what I think about where your ferritin should be. Hmm. That's irrelevant. Your body is telling me this is not enough. I, I need some more. I'm going to push out more transferrin, which of course are the taxis for iron. So, you know, it is a reasonable response of the body to say, well, I know how to fix this iron deficit. I'll send out more taxis for iron and surely more passengers will arrive. You know, I can pick up more from the gut to deliver yep. more to the liver. So it's watching that transferrin is gold. Again, you have to know what somebody's normal looks like and there are and watch for the individual shift. And again, there are some exceptions to the rule where transferrin is not reliable as a marker of shortfall. And what are, what are those? Are they, are they common? Yeah, they are common. I think, it, you know, we have to, we're not going to be surprised that inflammation is one of them. Because as we've just started this conversation, it's like, well, when you're inflamed and your body perceives that primarily to be, you know, bacteria on board, all the rules change, mm. all the rules of regulation change. And so we wouldn't be looking at somebody's transferrin levels who is experiencing inflammation and saying, oh, you're not, um, you don't have a shortfall of iron. We can't make that judgment while they're inflamed, actually. We would have to say you're not hungry for iron right now, but I understand why you're not hungry because you perceive you've done a risk-benefit analysis and the risk is too great right now to take on any more iron because the bacteria may use it. So I don't, you know, I would say if that inflammation is transient for that individual, ideally we wait, we don't do the iron studies during the inflammatory period we wait until that has calmed down then we do them and then the transferrin will be an accurate reflection of their hunger and their shortfall but there are a few other exceptions where i don't use transferrin in this way pregnancy it's extremely important that you have very high transferrin in pregnancy yeah transferrin is not just this taxi we described for iron for the mum, it's the only way the fetus gets iron is transferrin. So this, you know, you'll see transferrin levels, you know, higher than you've ever seen them before, you know, high threes, even into the fours. And we have data from all around the world that says, thumbs up, that's great work, mum. Mm. You really need to make a lot of taxis to deliver a lot of iron to your baby. So I don't use transferrin as a marker in pregnancy of shortfall. That's an adaptation to pregnancy. But similarly, there's a ghosty sort of version of that for women who take exogenous estrogen. Uh. Yeah, the good old combined <laughs> contraceptive pill or HRT that's got estrogen in it. 
these trick the body into thinking the same thing. They think, oh, we've got a baby on board. We have to deliver iron to the placenta. So the transferrin will upregulate. Our synthesis of it will speed up by the liver in response to the estrogen. It is no longer telling you clearly, oh, this woman isn't meeting her iron needs. It's saying this woman isn't meeting a fictitious baby's iron (laughs) needs or is trying to meet a fictitious baby's needs. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So we can't use transferrin in, in those scenarios either. There's one other thing that we come across a lot, of course, in practice, which is individuals who are obese. And one of the interesting um, phenomenons that's fairly new finding in iron nutrition is that not all people who have an obese BMI, but a, a large proportion of them, and a lot, a lot of people who are listening might go away and look at some labs of you know, their patients and find this to be quite true. These patients will have really clearly adequate ferritin, you know, perhaps even high normal ferritin, suggesting uh, inflammation and or surplus, because of course we expect obese patients, you know, to carry quite an inflammatory load. Mm, So mm. we're saying, well, you know, that ferritin might not all be genuine surplus. It might be that sequestration process. But you'll find that transferrin is high. And you go, hang on a second. Whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) I thought we said... When the ferritin is high for any reason, good surplus, you know, good amount of iron in the liver or inflammation, that the response would be to reduce the production of transferrin. Well, in obese patients, not all of them, but a big proportion of them, you'll see that they don't. So, for example, just to give this more, you know, make this less cryptic, Um, You know, I might see a uh, female, she's, uh, you know, in the obese category, her ferritin, say, 120, uh, which is remarkable for any menstruating female. Mm. Um, uh, But her her transferrin is um, 2.9. And you go, wow, that is, again, remarkably high for a female. Um, you know, certainly for a non-pregnant, you know, non-estrogen taking female. And that always had me baffled for ages because I just thought, why why are they not suppressing transferrin? Why is that inverse relationship not working? But new research has found that in those obese individuals that do that, they actually have a SNP for probably transferrin, maybe hepcidin, it's still a little bit patchy. Whatever that that SNP or series of SNPs, uh, wherever they're placed, it causes iron dysregulation. And the iron dysregulation means that they can't release hepcidin. They don't have that mm. negative signal to the same extent that we should have. So they haven't got that memo that goes, hey, guys, enough. We don't want any more. Stop picking it up. Stop mobilising it. And interestingly, Nathan, they have gone on to say not just that obese patients have this pattern, but in fact this is 
likely to drive diabetes in these patients because too much iron, not being able to say, no thanks, I've got enough, and to keep, keep you know, uh, sending out more taxis and, you know, keep all your doorways for iron open in the gut because that's what uh, happens with high transferrin means that the pancreas gets dumped. One of many organs mm. that gets overloaded by iron. And then the overloading of iron in the pancreas leads to their diabetes type 2. Wow. So it's this fascinating link that's made me really look at obese patients with that unusual iron study pattern more closely. But going back to your question, I don't use the transparent. I don't go, oh, this woman who's obese who has a ferritin of 120 and a high transparent, oh, she needs more iron. I go, no, 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 no. Oh, no, rules don't apply. I can't use transferrin in these patients as a signal of iron shortfall and hunger. It's, you know, it's a an abnormality of their iron yep. regulation. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, there's a couple there, obviously, inflammation, estrogen use, pregnancy, and also obesity. So it's probably something to keep an eye out for in, in many of your patients. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, the last podcast was with um, Dr. Randy Seely, who's looking at um, how bariatric surgery actually changes the set point in your brain. And serendipitously, they're discovering that it's something to do with iron regulation in the small intestine, which is really wow. unexpected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh-huh. yeah, we'll, we'll hopefully learn more about that in the future. Yeah. Yeah, look, it, it is just such a great area to always keep an eye on because mm. it is such a prolific research area. I think iron has had an unfair share of attention, but then sometimes I go, well, you know, it is such a fascinating topic and it's such <laughs> a big one in our in our patients. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the second marker, so transferrin is your primary one. There's a few caveats there. Um, transfer and saturation it'd be your number one um, selection in importance. So can you describe what that means and, and why it's so important to you? So what we've been talking about so far is that, you know, transferrin is really the dedicated taxis that don't exclusively carry iron, but they predominantly carry iron. And that watching how big or small your taxi fleet is is meaningful in most patients outside of those caveats um, to understand what this individual thinks of their current iron levels. I don't have enough. I need to increase the taxi fleet. Oh, I have plenty. Stop Stop giving me, you know, I'm going to uh, suppress that transferrin level. The transferrin saturation, I call it bums on seats. It's very technical talk, I know. <laughs> so it means that in those taxis, what percentage of seats are occupied by iron? Now, that's interesting because it really is telling us not about surplus, which is ferritin, you know, um, or, you know, surplus or, or inflammation, um, but it's telling us about kind of the current spend, you know, where are you spending your iron and and are you sending it out to the tissues that need it? Because, again, if we take this in a fasted state, that's what the bums on seats reflects, right? Mm. If you take it in a fed state, it's like, oh, we went to the gut and we picked up some passengers. (laughs) Yeah, that's not really what I want to know. 
So a fasted trans fan saturation says these, you know, our taxis are, you know, pretty empty or moderately full or, wow, they're overflowing with passengers that are being sent out to all the target tissues, you know, and, and organs across the body. So I think it's an interesting aspect to look at um, in a patient to understand, yeah, you may have a surplus that, that we might think is big or small, but how are you spending that, you know, and are you able to spend that? Um, and so in a patient who's inflamed, of course, that transfer and saturation, the bums on seats reduces because it's not safe to spend any iron right now. Um, and then you look at individuals up the other end of the scale where their taxis are overflowing. You know, that transfer and saturation percentage is really high normal, if not above the range. Um, and we go, hmm, that's a lot of iron to be sending out. And it starts to beg the question about whether there is what I call iron dumping going on. Right. So that's, you know, delivering iron to either in excess of the needs of um, certain organs and tissues or irrespective of organs, needs and tissues. Because we know that iron is dumped and deposited um, across all different tissues across the body from joints to endocrine, like iron is frequently found um you know, in endocrine glands and things like that, the brain, of course. So when we see those high normal transfer and saturation percentages in a fasting state and we see it consistently in a patient, we're sort of going, mm, gee, who's, who's on the wrong end of that delivery? You know, are you doing a bit of dumping? And again, we have to redefine what expected looks like. You know, we've taught, I've taught for years, oh, a third of the seats in the taxis should be full with iron. But that's one of those theoretical mantras that get mm -hmm. repeated ad nauseum. It's actually not the common percentage. Um, the common percentage of uh, transfer and saturation that we see in menstruating females is about 20 to 25%. So only about one in five mm. to one in four seats are occupied um, in those taxis. And the common transfer and saturation percentage in men is about 30%. Hmm. So I know that you know, and a lot of people listening will know that the guidelines are, in terms of the medical guidelines, that if someone has a transfer and saturation percentage greater than 45%, this is the cutoff at which we may suspect that this individual has an HFE mutation, so a, um, a polymorphism that impacts their iron regulation and may predispose them to hemochromatosis. But actually, again, we're saying, okay, yeah, we're all in agreement if somebody has, you know, that value. But I'm looking at women and going 35% really that's not common and if I saw it consistently uh, in a woman in a fasting state I would start to go you know I think I think maybe you, you do have an HFE mutation maybe that is the line that we need to go down in terms of confirming that so transparent saturation is very interesting and it really radically changes your understanding about how to manage that patient in their own
Wow. Um, so HFE, is that the A gene or the E gene for um, hemochromatosis or is it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I you know, the HFE mutations, they're kind of, um, again, a little bit simplistically kind of framed in, in general practice here. We get told that only individuals who are homozygous for the C282Y, you know, are, are going to, you know, are really significant because they're the only ones that are going to um, have the greatly increased chance of developing iron overload at some point in their life. Um, and again, you just go, that is just such a small fraction of the story mm. because well before anybody gets to hyperferritinemia, so genuinely above range uh, ferritin, that lifelong, because it is a gene, so they would have been doing it all their life, that lifelong hyperabsorption of iron, because that is what the polymorphism effectively drives. It is a little bit like that obesity story. They can't have, they don't appear to have normal functioning hepcidin. And so they don't have the negative regulator right. of iron. Um, so these individuals, you know, even if they're heterozygous for the H63D or the C65C, these are the lesser talked about mutations. This is incredibly meaningful because they've been hyperabsorbing iron all their life. It may not look like anything in terms of their surplus because they've been using it, they've been menstruating if it's a woman, um, or they've been a vegan. So, you know, all of these things can, can you know, counter that hyperabsorption in terms of what their ferritin looks like. But if we knew that their taxis were overloaded all the time, mm. we would know that for their whole life, there has been some degree of iron dumping in tissues. And the question will be when that reaches a tipping point. And the tipping point will be there in the clinical picture. You know, the tipping point is not the ferritin, as I said. The tipping point is not, oh, now, now everybody agrees they've got iron overload. It is, I see this often in individuals and their ferritin might be well within range but their transferrin saturation percentage is 40% consistently, uh, let's say, um, and they've got joint pain, inexplicable joint pain. Now, we know that iron has a predilection for joints in terms of being dumped. Um, certain mutations uh, preference that dumping pattern more than others. The C282Y, even if you're heterozygous for that, Whereas the, you know, uh, H63D mutation, again, heterozygous, homozygous, um, you know, we see a different sort of pattern where we see a little bit, unfortunately, of a predilection for the brain um, and um, hence its correlation with some of the neurodegenerative disorders or increased risk of. Um, yeah, so it, it's it's really interesting to to pick up on these really early and understand that we can be on the front foot with patients and say, oh, there's something far more nuanced going on here. 
we're not going to be led astray by just looking at that ferritin. We see you. We see what you're doing here. Um, and you can, as I said, confirm that quickly through doing a, an HFE genotype. Yeah, right. So um, are you using this more to look for early signs of excess? So I suppose I've gone into this thinking by default, a lot of people, particularly women, are low in iron and you're, you're looking for evidence to look for deficiencies. There can be things that can um, confound that and give you false impressions. But, I mean, this is a Goldilocks thing as well. You're looking for, for low, but as you move away from that sort of average, the, the further you get away, the more suspicion starts to form in your mind that, hey, although you're not near the extremes or the, the excess, you're on the, on the road there and, and this is something to, to sort of take note of. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think when you look at... Um, I mean, one of the beautiful things I read not long ago, and it was like, you know, when you just want to slap yourself in the forehead and you go, yeah, oh, my gosh, of course, you idiot, um, you know, is that the HFE mutations are not sex-linked. Now, all of us go, yeah. And then I go, but they're not sex-linked, which means it's the same prevalence mm. of, uh, the, you know, it's going to be, equally distributed across women and men. Now, we all know why we don't tend to hear about as many women that have HFE mutations because they were bleeding. And mm. so they masked the ferritin that people were watching as their cue to make the diagnosis or to follow up the, you know, investigation along those lines. But more to the point, the bit that, wanted, that I wanted to slap myself on the head for was because they're saying... Let me just say that again. <laughs> They're not sex-linked, right? So that means that you're going to see as many women as you do men that have this high normal transferrin saturation percentage. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I do. I do. Right. Because if I have taken on board these enormous studies, I mean, when I say that the average transferrin saturation in non-pregnant, non-breastfeeding, uh, menstruating females is about 20 to 25%. I mean, that is based on the centre of digestive, uh, the, sorry, the centre of disease control data. I mean, these are enormous data mm. sets. Mm. We're in no doubt that this is, you know, um, robust. Um, so when we make that adjustment, and we go, okay, so any woman that's sitting in front of me that consistently has a, um, you know, a transfer and saturation percentage, uh, even over 30, and I have a colleague who, who's my mentor with a lot of things related to iron, and he's like, any woman with a transfer and saturation percentage over 30 consistently has an HFE mutation. It's just a question of which one. Yeah. Uh, which whether she's hetero, homo, and and how that may or may not play out in her health story. Interesting. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's look at ferritin then. Um, so, from my impression, it can fluctuate a fair bit, but it's also it can take a while. It's it's not like an early warning system for the overload potentially. Then, so no, not at all. So you know, and again, you know. It is important to know because, you know, we are going to have these conversations with doctors and other people from different modalities and training. It's important to know that we're not saying anything that the RACGP isn't mm. saying. They say 
transfer and saturation percentage is your earliest indicator that someone has an HFE mutation. And I go, thank you. Can we just print that and frame that, <laughs> that in everybody's, uh, you know, every medical clinic? Um, so, yeah, ferritin is a very late marker. And because, especially in women, because we keep losing iron. So that keeps masking mm. that we really are hyperabsorbers. And just to give you a little bit of a sense of this, I mean, again, this goes back to how I feel that we're being led astray a little bit around our interpretation of what healthy iron studies really look like, particularly ferritin. Because when we're told women should have a ferritin you know, and, and just about every company will print this on your report of your patients. Uh, women, you know, women's ferritin varies between 20 and 220 is often what we're told. We imagine that the middle is good, mm. which is rubbish. There's no evidence at all of that, as, as we've mentioned. Um, and, uh, and when you understand that the the source of this reference range is really unusual in Australia. The minimum is a consensus that has been agreed to by all the pathology companies, but the maximum is up to them based on old data that they've collected. It has nothing, it's not a bell-shaped curve. It is not the 95th centile for the current, you know, Australian uh, female population. And, and so I really understand why people get led astray by this. So if we imagine that, you know, the maximum for ferritin was just that, 220, it's going to take a long time for a woman to exceed that, even if she's mm. got HFE mutations because she's bleeding, right? Um, but if you go to independent data, the 95th centile for ferritin for women is 126 if you're under the age of 40, right? So if you're a woman in your 30s, and as I said, you've got a, a ferritin of 120, that's remarkable. That is highly unusual. You're an outlier. Um, but would the GP call that hyperferritinemia and say you clearly, you know, are on your road to iron overload? No, they wouldn't. But we should be able to mm. recognise that. So, yeah, the ferritin, I think it's maximum is really misleading in terms of the reference ranges we've been given. One, because it isn't, uh, uh, you know, it isn't reflective of the 95th centile in the, in the female population of a healthy population. Um, and in fact, the WHO says any woman who has a ferritin over 150 is likely to have iron overload. Right. It's pretty wild, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty yeah. Different. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and the other thing about ferritin and why I'm not such a fan, uh, is, is the other aspect, which people imagine that, that therefore, if, if we're being told the minimum is 20 and the maximum is 220, then a hundred sounds really good. I'm like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> that is not what we should be expecting in menstruating women. So what, what would you be your goal? or ideal range be like 30 to 60 or like I've got the impression that you've heard a lot in natural and functional medicine almost yeah more is better when you get 60 or 100 but and I know a lot of women are, are maybe on the borderline they're constantly trying to get it up but is is that really necessary I suppose my question what's your sort of yeah. like zone 
Yeah. Look, and I know that I really go out on a limb with this, but it's not without the most enormous tree trunk that I climbed up to get out on this limb, you know, (laughs) like I just say to everybody and, uh, you know, and I have these conversations frequently. I have them with GPs. I have them with all sorts of health professionals. And I challenge every single professional to show me a paper that says differently from what I'm saying, Mm. because I have collected over 20 years, this incredible library that is, just a choir of voices that says, no, <laughs> the average ferritin in a menstruating female um, is 34 to 46, I think is roughly both the American and the Australian data. That's the average. Now we have, we don't like average, right? We're, we're um, integrative health professionals that are always aiming for optimal so people push it up and they say, oh, well, we don't want to be average. You know, the average woman is not very well, right? So um, surely more is better. But what that does is it ignores the basic science of what ferritin represents. It represents a surplus. So when you have more surplus, that does not mean more in your thyroid. That does not mean more in your bone marrow. That does not mean more anywhere else, right? That is the great misunderstanding. And also we understand that, and, you know, again, there's such um, clear consensus around this, that until your surplus, your ferritin has dropped, under 30 maybe, but most reliably even lower than that, you will not see the bone marrow iron concentration drop. You will not see the thyroid iron concentration drop. You know, there is great data on this. Mm. So to go back and answer your question, one is, well, let's adjust our expectations because why would we compare the woman sitting in front of me to some abstract concept that, you know, people... I'm going to say cavorting in theory have, but aren't in the real world. And why don't we look at median ferritin levels for healthy women? Okay, that's adjusted my expectations dramatically. I'm down to, you know, 30 to 40s, great. But better still, if you know how to read iron studies, I would say the ideal ferritin, the patient will show you, right? What I mean by that is everything that we've talked about Mm. so far, Nathan, because I see women who have a ferritin of 25 and that is their sweet spot. And I can tell you that they are doing beautifully with a ferritin of 25. How can I say that? Because their transferrin says so. Their transferrin is nice and low, says, nope, we're good. Please don't give me any more. I'm good. The FBE is robust right? There is no sign of shortfall and there's no reason why that transferrin would not work as a reliable marker in these women. Then I see other women and their ferritin is at 30 or 40 and they're hungry for it. And I say, oh, okay, so forget about the median values or the 50th centile. That's theoretical. I'm looking at you and I understand you need more okay, you need more. Let's, you know, 
individualize this. So I think that, you know, the, the understanding what healthy looks like is a good place to start, but then always going to the patient and literally asking their labs, what do you need? Where's your sweet spot? Where have I seen you look at your best in terms of that transferrin being satiated, being nice and low, under 2.6 generally is a good is a good spot to sit for women. Um, and, you know, no um, sign of any compromise in terms of hemoglobin, hematocrit, MCV, RDW, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Does that answer the question? Absolutely, yeah, and helps me understand why you put transferrin as your primary, <laughs> your, your favourite <laughs> marker. Yeah, it completely puts it into context. It's really good. Um, I know we're, we're getting out of time, but I want to maybe just it's and it literally is a podcast in itself. So but maybe we can um, you know, entice the listeners to to check out your more detailed one. But I sort of feel remiss if we didn't didn't cover off the supplementation um, message because I think that's something new and different and probably important to um, to broadcast. So yeah, um, briefly if you can or not, um, that's fine by me. Um, you've looked at at iron supplementation um, in terms of dose and, and frequency and um, again like particularly my sort of the retail and pharmacy world it's all about you know the arms race and more and more ferrous um, sulfate and um, but that could be now we understand the physiology um, counterproductive because they've got these regulatory mechanisms so can you just sort of set the scene and describe why this may not be the most effective method of iron administration? So the it comes down to a lot of the players that we've described. So when you take a large dose of iron, obviously when somebody's taking um, anything over 20 milligrams, actually, of elemental iron, um, this is more than we're likely to encounter, of course, in the diet. And the gut doesn't sit there and take anything, as you know, Nathan. The gut goes, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna hit me up with that, are you? Um, and so there's a dynamic response that happens um, to mitigate the risk. It goes back to the risk benefit analysis because the the gut literally goes that is too much. Um, so I will compensate by reducing my DMT1 transporters for iron, which is the main doorway that iron uses to be picked up from the gastrointestinal lumen into the enterocytes. This also, this high intake, of course, you know, over 20 milligrams, yes, but once you get up into the lofty heights of 70 milligrams, 90 milligrams, it's crazy. Uh, and the, the response, the pushback will be even greater. Evokes a really strong hepcidin response from the liver. So the hepcidin not only says, will we shut down doors now, but we will keep those doorways, those DMT1 doorways shut for the next 48 hours. There's also a second mechanism that is induced by excessive oral singular doses of iron and that's called mucosal block where the enterocytes actually just hold the absorbed iron within the enterocyte bind it up so that it can't ever transfer across the basal lateral surface and so that the iron will literally die you know be lost with the dying cell 
as the cells turned over. So this has become really common knowledge. Well, mm, has it? I take that back. But, you know, look, there was this groundbreaking paper by Moretti and colleagues in 2015 and an editorial that went with it. Um, the editorial was called So You Think You Know How to Treat Iron Deficiency Anemia. It's in a medical journal. And Moretti and colleagues had done their own research showing this counterintuitive aspect of high dose oral iron the fact that it actually blocked iron uptake for the next 48 hours all the doors came down and the body said eh, eh, no more right? that's too much um and meridian colleagues and the editorial said oh you know so we're doing this all wrong you know we need to lower the dose um and uh, rather than, you know, hammering someone with iron every single day um, with, you know, more than 20 milligrams uh, for sure, you know, often, as I said, 75, 100 milligrams, we need to perhaps do that just on Monday, Wednesday and Friday. Now, this actually just echoes a Cochrane review. And this Cochrane review is quite old now, but they found in developing countries where they couldn't get iron into women every single day because of fiscal reasons, they had to drop it down to alternate day or even once a week dosing. It was just as effective. So, you know, it's not just uh, a theoretical kind of trick that we're applying. We have the follow through evidence that it is more efficacious. You do get better success. Um, we don't do alternate day dosing in say a vegan because in a vegan there is no excess you know they need that 20 to 40 milligrams every day just to mimic dietary intake but we do do it in just about every other individual to kind of work with the body not against it yeah it makes complete rationale and in sense so yeah it's really interesting and hopefully um yeah practitioners will consider it and maybe see some um, better responses in their patients with their um, iron administration. Yeah. Um, well, that's been, yeah, incredible. It's so many nuances and it's really helped enlighten me to get a better understanding of all the um, parameters of iron and realise it is a double-edged sword. And um, whilst it's beneficial over the long term, we need to be mindful of excess, but it's also things that can um, maybe confuse or um, be open to misinterpretation because of all these other factors. So it's really really good that you shed light on this topic and um, can see why you've got two and a half hours worth of content <laughs> on your podcast, which I really encourage um, people to purchase and to listen to. So um, so just to finish off, what's, what's on the horizon for your next 100 podcasts? Oh, gosh, that's a very good question. Uh, I know the very next one that we're releasing this month is on N-acetylcysteine, which is a Ooh. best friend of mine. Um, but um, we're talking about some of its edges this month because there is, you know, I, I was just doing a quick lit review over the last few weeks, Nathan. It, they're putting it in teardrops. They're putting it in, um, you know, sorry, not eye drops, not teardrops. Mm. They're putting it in eye drops. They're doing topical preparations. They're putting it in joint replacements. You know, like, and I'm going, wow, we, we're really high on knack right now, aren't we? Like everybody wants it in the water. <laughs> And that's amazing because it's so potent, um, but it has some edges. So I'm, I'm talking about the edges and, and uh, the next podcast is called To Knack or Not To Knack. 
Um, yeah. So that'll be a bit of fun. Yep. I was going to ask what's the what's the pun title, but there you go. You got it. <laughs> we always have one. We always. Yeah, have I like them. them. I love them. Well, yeah, I really encourage people to, to listen in. Um, congratulations on a hundred, and hopefully, there's many hundreds more in the future. Thanks so much, Nathan. <laughs>